welcome to another installment of Strange Occurrences. I would love to have gotten a new full episode out by now, but I have been busy strangely. I've managed to use my energy for more domestic things than I usually can. I've been able to clean and organize my living space lately, which is something that I don't get to do often, so I've taken full advantage of it. I'm still scouting movies to do the next episode on, so don't think I've forgotten my riffing roots. But... I find strange occurrences easier to do on short notice, and I enjoy doing them. So you're going to get a strange occurrence, and you're going to like it. Before the fun bits, let's do the social stuff. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to everyone listening. Really, the only thing I want out of this is for at least one person to enjoy one of the things I do. To get a laugh or a nervousness sort of creeping down their spine late at night. Be a little too scared to look out the window. You know, the simple things in life. So the fact that you're listening is greatly appreciated, but some of you are going above and beyond, and it's even more appreciated. If you enjoy these, that's enough, but if you want to do more, share the episodes with people who you think will also enjoy them. Don't shove them down anyone's throat, or if someone doesn't want to be here, that's fine. I know I'm not for everyone, but if you think someone might enjoy these, then toss me their way. And then there's a few of you going even further, so special thanks right now to Josh and Jackal, both of whom have signed up on the Patreon with a pledge of a dollar a month. Ten more of you do that, and no pressure. The podcast officially pays for itself, and the episodes will stay up even when new ones aren't being produced. If you want to help out as well, head on over to patreon.com slash horror, the number four, the letter H. The minimum is $1 per month, and the maximum is whatever you're comfortable with. Only donate if you can do so without need of that money, and if you do, I'll mention you at the start of an episode every now and then. If you decide to donate a lot every month, then I'll mention you a lot more often. Also, I get to see cities and countries of listeners, so thank you to all in California, Illinois, Florida, and more states whose cities I'm not familiar with. Uh, A lot of listens from Dover, but it doesn't specify which Dover, and there's at least half a dozen of those in this country, so... And big shout out to those listening in Australia and Brazil, thank you. And the surprising listens I've gotten recently from Germany and Ireland. Got some ancestry of both countries down the line, so to my Irish listeners, 26 plus 6 equals 1. Love you all. And to my German listeners, Danke. And to the listeners in Mongolia, of which I've had a lot over the years, I am super curious how you found me, and also that so many of you listen from one area. So if you're in Bayern Kahonor, I, I really apologize for that pronunciation, but thank you so much for joining me. All right. Everything you are about to hear isn't real. To my knowledge, everything in Strange Occurrences is fictional, and any resemblance to anyone living or dead is completely coincidental. This episode contains paranormal situations, missing persons, mild body horror, murder, suicide, and just generally spooky stuff. If that isn't your cup of tea, feel free to skip this one. As always, all music used on this podcast, except for the opening theme written by yours truly, is written and performed by Kevin McLeod, free of charge. He's an awesome person for giving the world such fantastic free usage music. Now sit back, have a hard time relaxing, and come with me to a plot of land, but don't stay too long. This place tends to get a little weird after some time. If you drove down U.S. Route 50, within an hour or two, depending on traffic, of driving east from St. Louis, you'd pass by a plot of land without thinking anything of it. To most people, it would seem to blend in perfectly with the surrounding land. Lots of grass, occasionally noticeably corn, some cows, and copses of trees dotting the several acres. It would be, to most people, not memorable in any real way. Just part of the landscape of southern Illinois. Indeed, it wouldn't look out of place in most of the Midwest. But what wouldn't be visible would be the over 200 years of high strangeness, paranormal instances, missing persons, and more. 
all taking place in or near what has become to be known as the Madison Family Farm. The plot of land, now known as the Madison Family Farm, belonged originally to various indigenous tribes, most notably the Kaskaskia. In fact, it is with them that the original colonizers to the area fought for the land they eventually settled. Some say this is in part why such unfortunate and weird things have happened on the land. The earliest record of claim by white Europeans on this particular plot of land are in the early 1700s. A man named Charles Berenger declared the land his family's farm. There are no records of incidents of strangeness until almost a century later in the late 1700s. By then, the Berengers had moved. No concrete reason could be found as to why, though it likely had to do with tensions between the French colonizers and the indigenous peoples, and also the French-Indian War tensions of British colonizers moving further westward and fighting against the French who had settled along with any indigenous tribes who sided with the French against the British expansion. And then again, more fighting and instability during the American Revolution, during which there was an Illinois campaign, and during which George Rogers Clark fought many battles and skirmishes in and around Illinois, including the taking of the city of Kaskaskia, which is a mere hour or so away from the Madison family farm. Sometime after the revolution is when the family of Thomas Madison is recorded as owning the land. It is unclear as to how the Madisons acquired the land, whether through force, negotiation, or through supporting those in charge of the regional governments. But by 1790, the family had a farm set up and running. In the fall of 1792 is when the first odd thing is recorded. In the diary of Alice Jane Madison, Thomas's eldest daughter, she mentions the plight of the family's cows and crops, saying both had fallen to some sort of unknown sickness. Were this the only thing mentioned by her, it would barely be worthy of note. However, by the middle of the following year, Alice had written that both herself and her mother had begun to wonder if there was a, quote, dark cloud, end quote, hanging over the land. Several cattle had died mysteriously, and the land, while seemingly good, had failed to produce nearly the amount of crops it had been planned to. She noted her father's disapproval of her and her mother's theories involving witchcraft or other supernatural forces. Thomas was a no-nonsense sort of man. While staunchly religious, as many in that area were at the time, he believed firmly that any hardships being incurred were natural and just coincidence, rather than a sign of fortune or misfortune from God or any other beings. In a diary entry of Alice's from January of 1793, we have the only record of her father's disappearance. She wrote that, quote, Father left for the field this morning upon hearing that another bull had vanished. He was convinced it was the Indians and took his musket. Mother begged him not to go, as she's been having bad feelings lately. I have too. My dreams have been dark, and I dare not write, even here, what horrible things have been forced into my head at night. I pray God stop them and deliver me from such evil while I slumber. It is fast approaching nightfall, and Father has not been seen since leaving this morning. I am consoling Mother, reminding her of Father's tendency to work till the work is done, with no stopping, but I am just as concerned as she is. I fear we may never see him again." End quote. Her fears were founded as after that day Thomas Madison was never heard from again. The prevailing theory is that Thomas was right and local indigenous peoples had stolen cattle from him and that he had caught them in the act and they'd killed him and hit his body. This wouldn't be unheard of, but other entries from Alice and others in the same region at the time don't point towards the indigenous peoples, and the only one on the farm who seemed to believe it was them had been Thomas himself. Alice was married off soon after this, and her oldest brother, Henry Allen Madison, took over the farm. Henry was similar to his father in his worth ethic, but was more open to explanations for things that Thomas hadn't been. Henry's eventual wife, Mary Ellen Madison, also kept a diary while living on the farm with her husband, and her entries provide some more insight into the strange happenings of the farm. Throughout the early 1800s, her diary sporadically mentions strange lights coming from the western edges of the field at night, 
things in the house not being where she left them, and bad dreams. Explanations have been put forth for each of these, with the western edge of the farm at that time being wetter because of the geography, and the prevailing theory being that essentially swamp gas ignited and caused small bursts of light occasionally could explain the strange light witnessed. The moving household items chalked up to forgetfulness or servants moving things without admitting to them, and the dreams caused by stress and other factors. The peak of the strangeness at that time occurred in August of 1825, though. The last diary entry of Mary Ellen talks about how weeks for leading up to that time, there had been noises in the house. Originally, it was thought to be small animals, squirrels and the like, getting into the framework of the home and causing scuttling noises and the occasional knocking sound. But shortly before the last entry, she wrote about the noises being louder, to the point of it being impossible to be anything other than a person or something even larger. Her dreams began to be violent, and she started avoiding sleeping altogether, and wandered the house and farmland at night rather than subject herself to nightmares. On her walks, she recorded seeing even more lights coming from wooded areas and hearing terrifying sounds coming from all around her, including what she said was clearly women screaming and the shrieking of children. She also writes that one night she encountered a stranger that he was, quote, pale with dark eyes and darker hair and had a menacing aura about him, unquote. He claimed his name was Clancy, and he was a wanderer who was just passing through, and while she said he apologized profusely for startling her and left quickly after, that she believed he stayed in the darkness and watched her until she returned to the house. She also wrote that she believed him to be a demon or another evil entity in human form. Her writings suggest that her mental state began to deteriorate from lack of sleep. Whether that was what caused the next incident or something else, we won't ever know, but on August 22, 1825, Henry Allen Madison was found murdered in a barn on the property by field workers. News articles from the time describe the scene as, quote, one of untold carnage not capable of being done by civilized hands, end quote. From what can be pieced together, Henry had been gutted and his intestines used to string him up by the neck, hanging from a beam in the barn. He had been alive when he had been hung. When someone went to tell Mary of her husband's untimely death, she was found in a bath that had been stained red with blood. She reportedly kept mumbling that she saw him die over and over, but either could not or would not say who had done so. For a brief time, she was considered a suspect of the murder, but ultimately authorities did not believe the diminutive Mary Ellen was capable of overpowering her husband and then hoisting his body up so high. The culprit was never determined, but local indigenous peoples were blamed, and his death helped to continue fuel racism towards the natives for years to come. Mary was sent back east to live with relatives on the coast and supposedly never truly recovered and spent the rest of her days in a small room with family, barely ever speaking beyond saying her prayers. The farm was sold and the new owner, a Matthias Greenlean family, began to take over operation of the farm. Thirty years passed before anything else of note is found about the Madison, then Greenlee, family farm. In the summer of 1855, there was another murder on the property. In a small wooded area on the farm, a corpse was found on the afternoon of July 8th. The body was never identified, but was discerned to be an adult woman missing her hands, feet, and head. Articles from the time indicate that in a several mile radius, no missing women were reported. The official cause of death was listed as homicide, but no one was ever charged in relation to the death. There were minor incidents reported by members of the Greenlee family until the farm was sold again years later. The incidents, while nothing close to the two gruesome murders that had taken place on the land, were still strange nonetheless. The most common reports given of the time, between the murder in 1855 and the next major incident in the early 1940s, are of strange lights seen in the sky over and around the farm, the disappearance of a dozen head of cattle, 
and at a certain point, the northwestern section of the farm was left for nature to reclaim and fenced off as that was where the vast majority of cattle had disappeared. Signs were posted warning off any accidental travelers to avoid the area. More common things were noises in any residence on the farm. The main house had been added on to, and some parts rebuilt during the time the Greenleys owned it, and at least one person from each generation, though usually more, had written accounts of seeing shadows move out of the corner of their eyes and hearing noises when noises should not be heard. In 1933, the Madison family moved back from the East Coast, having made a lot of money in various industrial bargains, sought to reclaim their family farm, and due to the ravages of the Great Depression, managed to acquire the farm back at a relatively cheap price. Samuel Madison moved in with his family in 1934. In his personal writings, he talked about how familiar he was with the family history of the farm and how he had heard stories of Mary Ellen Madison and how even into her old age she would become agitated and even catatonic when the farm was mentioned or her husband's murder was mentioned. According to him, Mary Ellen's last words were, quote, Clancy did it, end quote, perhaps referencing the pale stranger she wrote of. No Clancy was recorded as having been involved in the investigation of her husband's murder, though. Samuel Madison's accounts also tell of misfortune taking place on the farm. Nothing too horrible in and of itself, however, the frequency of accidents or mishaps leans towards the high side. Small sinkholes opening up to cause damage to equipment, a storm hitting the farm and no other farms in the area, wind taking off parts of the roof when the rest of the fields were left largely untouched, equipment breaking even when it was in new condition, minor injuries frequently, bad dreams, and minor physical illnesses like headache spells plagued the farm for decades. However, by Samuel's death in 1955, nothing majorly significant had happened at the farm, and while stories persisted, the place had lost a lot of its local mythical status. This changed, though, in June of 1963. Samuel's eldest grandson, Charles David Madison, had taken over the farm from his father earlier in that year. His father, never wanting the responsibility, moved back east to be more involved in the family's finances and their industrial ties. In June, a fire started in the southwestern portion of the farm. It spread quickly and was barely contained. No people were hurt, though some cattle were later found in the fire, as was an animal not recognized by anyone involved in the cleanup and investigation. Reported as a wolf, the official reports of the time described the animal as, quote, a quadruped, likely canine in nature, based on the skull. However, the fur is of a thicker consistency than what should be present, and the length of the animal is approximately eight feet from snout to tail, though the fire damage makes this hard to measure accurately. It would have stood at nearly three and a half feet at the shoulders, making this possibly the largest wolf seen in this area in a hundred years." End quote. In fact, some have speculated the beast of Madison Farms to be an evolutionary holdout, that a pocket of a creature thought extinct for nearly 10,000 years had remained hidden and bred, and that this was proof that dire wolves hadn't gone fully extinct. Others argue that it was a wolf with gigantism or other possible genetic abnormalities. What isn't usually addressed, though, is another portion of the description of the animal. Quote, Of note also is the ribcage, which while still to scale for the animal, appears closer in nature to that of a humanoid rather than a canine. End quote. And that, quote, Some of the skin appears to be more humanoid than canine as well, but the fire damage makes both of these things difficult to confirm or retort. End quote. Those who do focus on this information lean heavily towards calling the beast of Madison Farms a werewolf. Others point to the indigenous creature sometimes known as a not-deer or other names, though we here at Strange Occurrences prefer not to speak the name of them as it is said to call them, and while we do not necessarily believe these legends, why test them? Whatever the animal was, it is not clear what it had to do, if anything, with the fire. It is also unclear on how the fire started. 
local authorities could not discern a cause. Again, there was a long period of time with minor activity, but another notable incident took place on May 23, 1972. Two people, Jose Carter and Ronald Franken, both local teens who worked summers on the farm, seemingly vanished from the property. Both boys had been in the western area of the farm. According to other workers, the boys had been headed out to that section to check on fencing and other duties. They left fairly early in the morning, and given the length of fence they had to check and other things needed done by them, they weren't expected back until a bit after noon. Charles Madison had a reputation for being kind and helpful to his employees, and would usually feed his work crew's breakfast and a late lunch. Jose and Ronald were both not known for missing those meals, and so when they didn't show, two more went to go check on them. By early in the evening, their families and friends had been called, and neither had been seen since they left to go to work that morning. Police were called in, and the next morning, when there was enough light, Charles and the local police department and about 20 volunteers, most of whom worked at the farm, searched that section of the farm and land nearby. Not a single trace was found, save for some of the supplies the boys had taken with them, which were found set on the ground near a section of fence that needed some repairs. The best guess was that they stopped when they saw the fence and set their equipment down to begin working, but as for what transpired next, no one knows for sure. No tracks, blood, or anything else was discovered, and since then, both boys have been declared legally dead as not a single trace of either has ever been found. After that, the farmhands began talking and the locals began to retell old stories, and the farm again became a place of local legend, with stories of lights in the sky, strange noises at night around the farm, and ghost stories. There are countless stories from the large group of teenagers who worked the Madison family farm during the 70s and early 80s. As so, they won't be listed here for the sake of some brevity. It would take hours to go through every recorded case during that time of odd things happening in and around the farm. But the next big newsworthy thing that happened came in 1984. Shortly after Charles' passing from a heart attack, the farm went to his middle daughter, Lucille Madison, and within that year, she experienced her first major event as the head of the farm. Her younger siblings and a cousin who had been staying with the family during Charles' ill-fated recovery after his first heart attack all reported that one evening, February 19th of 1984, that they were all awoken in the main farmhouse to horrendous screaming. That it sounded like a woman being brutally murdered all throughout the house. As in, every room had the same sound emanating from it, and no one could pinpoint exactly where the sounds were coming from. They all also agreed the screaming sounded like Lucille. Lucille, at the time, had been in one of the barns on the property, tending to a few things, and hadn't heard any of the initial commotion, and hadn't heard screaming at all, nor had she been screaming. She did hear her family all screaming as they fled the house, and was surprised to be greeted by them, all being shocked that she was okay. When she entered the house, the screaming had apparently stopped, but she did report loud thuds, quote, as if someone was taking a sledgehammer to the foundation, end quote. This went on for several minutes as she walked around both floors of the house and the basement without finding a source for the thuds. One of her siblings had called the police, and by the time the thudding stopped and she'd exited the house, the police had shown up. They took everyone's statements and searched the house themselves, during which two officers both reported, separately and simultaneously, that they had seen the face of a man with long hair, very pale skin, and a gruesome, toothy grin outside of a window. The problem with this was that both windows were facing opposite sides of the house and were both on the second floor. The family had remained outside with an officer while others were searching the house, and no one on the outside reported seeing anyone or anything that could explain the faces seen. Both officers left the house and refused re-entry. 
The search turned up nothing else, and an officer stayed outside the house the rest of the night to keep an eye on things, but it passed without further incident. After all this, though, the family, save for Lucille, all decided to return or move to the East Coast with the extended family there. Lucille ran the farm alone for several years until she was married in 1989 to a Frank Steed. Despite her taking his last name, the farm was still called the Madison Family Farm. Police were called to the farmhouse at least twice a year for the next several years. Almost all the calls were recorded as being investigation of lights seen on the property and thought to be a trespassers or strange noises in the house. It got to the point where the police would turn up and find that shots had been fired as Frank and Lucille had taken to arming themselves to try to search the house or going out into the fields to chase off the potential trespassers. Friends of the couple said that over the years their marriage began to suffer because of the stress of the farm. Cattle would still occasionally go missing or die in mysterious ways, and other minor incidents happened as well, but the major contributing factors to the next incident are thought to have been a lack of sleep, bad dreams, and a potential pattern of domestic violence. Close friends of Lucille say that Frank had been getting verbally more abusive in the lead-up to the 1995 incident, but none thought Frank was capable of actual violence, but some did say in interviews later with police that they wished they had convinced Lucille to leave him. On August 2nd, 1995, the police were called to the farm by Frank, who was hysterical and claimed Lucille was dead. Upon arrival, they found Frank on the porch, seemingly calm and detached from the world. They asked him about Lucille, and he pointed in the house and said, quote, What's left of her is in there, I think. End quote. Officers entered and found in the main room one large pool and several smaller pools of blood, fairly fresh. Later tests would confirm it was Lucille's blood more than enough that she would not have survived whatever had happened to her to cause such blood loss. But that is all they ever found of her. Frank was initially arrested and charged with the murder of his wife, but lack of evidence and a body meant he was not held for a long amount of time. The investigation stalled heavily because nothing seemed to add up. Frank seemed to have been awake for not long when the police arrived. The call had been placed at 11.45pm and the police had made it to the farm by 11.55pm. Frank had not had a single drop of blood on him, but didn't seem to have just cleaned himself. For all intents and purposes, Frank looked like he had woken up, seen a horrible sight, called the police, and then waited on the porch for them to arrive. There were no tracks to or from the house save for the police and the typical movements of workers and the steeds themselves. The pools of blood were just that, pools. There was no blood trail leading away from them, and no weapon or anything else of note was found in the house, even though it was searched multiple times from top to bottom. While Frank was in jail, the entire property was searched, and nothing of any indication of how the blood came to be or where her body went was found. Lucille Madison Steed had just vanished, leaving a majority of her blood behind. While there was no evidence at all, let alone any implicating Frank, after hearing about the verbal abuse the locals believed he had done it, save for the police. The police believed Frank was involved in his wife's death, but also believed it was in self-defense, and even tried to coax that out of him during interrogations after her disappearance. The police had been called to the house multiple times in the year lead up to her disappearance, but it was always Frank who called, and Lucille who'd been the one reprimanded. She'd begun to drink heavily with how stressful the farm had become, and during her drunken nights she would become hostile to Frank, and she'd even been taken to jail twice after threatening him with one of their guns, but he had refused to press charges. Their friends all told police similar stories, though, in that both parties had been losing more and more sleep over the months leading to her disappearance, and that they'd both been having bad nightmares. They also both had told their friends about an increase in strange lights in the sky over their farm and an increase in headaches. On October 15, 1995, just a bit over two months after his wife's disappearance, 
Frank's steed ended his own life. The morning after, when workers arrived for the day, they found the farmhouse strangely quiet and eventually found Frank's body in the shower off the main bedroom. He had apparently stripped, pulled the curtain around the tub as tightly as he could, put a shotgun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. No note was found, and the speculation was that whether he was responsible for his wife's disappearance or not, he couldn't go on living with what had happened. The farm sat empty for a year before Connor Madison came back from the East Coast to take back over operations. He would be the last Madison to set foot on the farm. The farm was the subject of local legends, teenagers sneaking onto the farm late at night to see the lights, and more for years after Connor took over without any major happening. That is until 2013. Connor Madison had stayed largely out of the town and preferred to deal with people over the phone, and so most of those in and around the Madison family farm had had no real read on the man. He primarily concerned himself with the financials of the farm and hired people to do the work for him while he stayed in the primary farmhouse and rarely left. He even had groceries delivered. He would regularly go days without speaking to another human being directly, and so the belief is that his body went undiscovered for a long time because of this. In late July of 2013, workers near the farmhouse started smelling something foul emanating from the house. After a week of this, someone finally called the police to do a wellness check on Connor Madison, and his remains were found in the house. No one could really recall the last time someone else had gone into the house to do business with Connor, and the groceries had always been dropped off on the porch, so the inside of the house came as a complete surprise to the authorities. Almost every room had been seemingly ransacked, but nothing was missing that could be determined. Valuables were strung around the same as everything else, so robbery was ruled out. Further is that every door that led out of the house was locked from the inside, along with every window being closed and locked as well. Connor's body was mostly found on the second floor, in the same bathroom that Frank Steed had killed himself in. Police reports of the entire scene read like a laundry list of horrific things to find. They include, but are not limited to the following. Fingers in various rooms on the first floor, including the main living room, the kitchen, both downstairs bathrooms, and hallways. Left foot severed at the ankle on the stove, seemingly somewhat cooked. Right foot in the basement placed on the exact center of the basement with a circle drawn in Connor's blood. Multiple teeth found in the refrigerator. A left eye on the back staircase. Various blood stains strewn throughout the entire house, all of which was tested and shown to be Connor's blood. Connor himself was found in the bathroom with his wrist slit and a tie tied around his neck and connected to the door handle. The final cause of death was a combination of lack of air and blood loss. It is unknown when he began to cut off his own body parts and place them around the house. It is also unknown how he managed to slit his wrists and tie the tie around his neck and the door handle, given that by the time this was done, he no longer had any fingers on either hand. Despite the evidence that suggests Connor Madison was murdered, the authorities labeled it a suicide. No suspects were ever named, and no further investigations have been done. After his death, the Madison family put up new fences around the farm, sold all the cattle and crops and any equipment they could, and the farm has remained abandoned since. According to the locals, there is almost always a police car that patrols by the farm a few times a night to dissuade bored local teens from sneaking into the property and hurting themselves or others. They also still receive calls to the farm to investigate strange lights seen by people driving by, some purportedly from inside the farmhouse, but thus far no one has been charged with breaking and entering, trespassing, or any other crime that would indicate someone has gotten into the house. Though they still own the farm, the Madison family seems to have no interest in ever bringing it back to its former functionality, nor any interest in selling it. 
No one knows exactly who or what has been responsible for all of the missing persons, cattle, fires, and deaths on the land, and odds are no one ever will fully explain the strange occurrences of the Madison family farm.